Hello tribe and welcome to the High Order Podcast. This podcast is all about finding yourself through mindset and movement. Our guests will share their struggles of everyday life and how they found a drive to turn their dreams into attainable goals. We are proudly sponsored by CrossFit High Order, an all-inclusive fitness facility in East Haddam, Connecticut, whose focus is teaching movement, building mindset, and education on nutrition. Thank you for tuning in, Tribe. I'm super excited to finally launch this podcast. We've been in the works for at least six weeks, getting a bunch of episodes already pre-recorded for you guys. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to it. We're going to be talking a lot about mindset, about journeys, about training, about eating, about so many different aspects and kind of allow those tangents to flow with that. So uh, the big thing is we will have guests on here that are going to talk about you know, a journey or accomplishment or a goal or something that they did, or maybe their ideas on training, maybe their ideas on mindset and, you know, relate to you and try to give some tips back. So that's what we're kind of be rolling with. And today I've got my brother on the show to knock the first episode out and uh, welcome here, Dan. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming to meet me up on a Saturday evening. No problem. So most People obviously don't know who I am or who you are, so how about we give a little intro for you? Sure. My name is Dan Petrullis. Um, grew up in Connecticut. I'm a police officer, a father, a husband, just a regular guy. Just likes to uh, push himself hard. So Dan's got a bunch of accomplishments from doing two 50-mile ultra marathons. He's ran two Spartan Ultra Beast races. And recently he finished the Spartan death race as a unofficial finisher, if that's correct. That's correct. And which uh, we're going to talk uh, pretty far in depth about today too, just to kind of hear the struggle that he had to go through to you know chase down this once was a dream, now turned into a goal. Not only hear about that, but also hear about the training that he went through to get there and obviously a lot of setbacks i'd probably say out of everything that you had you're you had more setbacks on the spartan death race than any other one huh yep definitely so to kick things off let's talk about how you got started into fitness what was kind of the first thing that piqued your interest and to kind of get you into that workout realm uh well just going up i was just like a regular athlete played baseball basketball but i stopped in high school and just did just did some like general fitness stuff, but um, nothing crazy until, you know, I had to train to become past the police test. Then, you know, the most I ever ran was like a mile and a half. And then I just got into like boxing and powerlifting a little bit, which I figured would help me out with the job and just keep myself safe. And that's kind of where it all started. So powerlifting, I know you also competed in a powerlifting event as well, or meet, I should say. Uh, with the powerlifting, we're talking about that squat, that bench, and that deadlift. So what was your training like back then? Uh, back then, yeah, I did a few meets, just uh, basically just, just the push-pull, just bench, press, and deadlift. Um, and I just wanted to get as big as possible, as strong as possible. So I ate a lot of food. I uh, carried a lot of extra body fat. I uh, got really strong. I loved the training. A great group of guys. and uh, But eventually, it just took a toll on my body. So were you in the... Early 20s time frame? Yeah, probably around like 26 years old, probably around that time. Probably like a good 12 years ago, maybe. Oh, 12 years ago. There you go. I was going to say, how old are you now? <laughs> uh, yeah, so about 12 years ago, I got into that powerlifting. And I think what happens to a lot of powerlifters of trying to always compete and push that weight is, you know, injury probably sets in at some point. Now, when you went from like going from powerlifting into what did we go into after that? Marathon? Did you try to run a marathon? Uh, yeah, that was kind of a goal I had for a little while. So, How did you make that transition from lifting weights to <laughs> <laughs> running entirely two different type of body styles and practices? Well, I got hurt powerlifting, uh, hurt a lot, where I had to go to the chiropractor two to three times a week. And it was basically just going just to try to be pain-free, but it was just too much. And I just knew I wanted a lifestyle change. So... Uh, I just started doing a little more cardio and then just setting miniature goals, basically just said, okay, well, I want to run like a 5k and then right next to 10k and pretty much just working my way up. Um, and eventually, you know, I was able to do a marathon. 
just going back, like this, that transition, was there anything that like, you know, you started having back issues? Was there any like breaking point where you said, all right, today's the day that I stopped powerlifting. <laughs> today's the day I start running. Like, Yeah, there was one moment I was squatting and I felt a pop in my back. I'm like, oh, that's not good. But, you know, just kind of being stubborn, I finished my workout. You know, I didn't squat anymore, but I did other stuff. And then... Um, you know, I went to the mall after that with my wife and we're bending over. Um, you know, she's sm- showing these like, uh, perfume samples and I was smelling. So I bent over to smell one and my back like locked up completely. So my body was at like a 90 degree angle and I had to like limp out of the mall. And then I get home and I just lay on the floor in excruciating pain. And I was like a turtle upside down. I just could not get up. And I'm like, wow, this is like, I need to make a change. Like I can't live my life like this. So yeah, that was that was a moment. Oh, and I think for all of us who have lived heavy at least once, uh, we've had that point where we feel that pull and we're like, "Got to finish the set, yeah. got to finish the reps." Otherwise, <laughs> like it doesn't matter. And then how much we regretted afterwards for the weeks after, sometimes even months that we're feeling that thing. So you're going to go into running a marathon, and it was kind of like this goal that you had that kicked around. I think a lot of people have that type of goal to try and get that big, long marathon run underneath their belt at some time in their life. Did you, what type of like training were you doing and what guidance did you have? I didn't really have any guidance. I just knew that that was my goal. So I just looked up, uh, just like a regular running plan. Just looked at a bunch, you know, and there's different ways you could kind of do it. And I'm like, I found one that would fit my schedule and, kind of look good. So I just started doing that. So it was basically just running, you know, four or five times a week, just slowly graduating, uh, gradually adding up the miles, you know, long runs on weekends. And I just followed that for, I don't know, maybe four months. Did you have, did you just try to run a marathon like by yourself or did you have an event lined up that you were trying to like get this training done before? Yeah. My goal was to do the Hartford marathon. So um, you know, but before that, I want to even just try to do like a half marathon. So basically like a miniature goal before that. And after I finished that half marathon, I'm like, wow, this like, that sucked. <laughs> I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do a marathon. But for some reason I got back out there the next weekend and ran more than the half marathon. I'm like, all right, it's, it's a go. I'm just going to keep on pushing. So yeah, I had that kind of that goal race a few months out. <laughs> That's funny. There's a, there's a time in, oh, I think it was like 2000, there's like 2000, Five, and I think it was my 2008 deployment. Not that it really matters in Afghanistan. I came back from a mission and the British were doing this half for heroes to kind of, you know, raise funds for their fallen. And it was in Afghanistan. So I got back from a mission and I was like, oh, I could totally do this. And never, you know, like, you know, like I probably ran five miles one or two times. So I'm yeah. like, sure, whatever. I can do anything, you know. And I took this marathon run with running like a mile in the past 30 days. <laughs> and and like my toes are bleeding. I'm all chafed. My shirt's bleeding because my nipples are all just like shaved. Oh, yeah. And I get done with the half marathon. And I remember it was like an hour, 48 minutes to get done with the half marathon. And I go, yep, my dream for a full marathon is gone. <laughs> like, I'm not ever doing that, ever doing that, you know. Uh, but that's also because I didn't have any sort of training. So I figured like this is how it's supposed to beat your body up. But <laughs> yeah. So how did your marathon go? Well, leading up to it. A few weeks out, I ended up getting like just pet, bad tendonitis just from like overuse injury, just running so much. So I had to think of another way to train just to try to get my miles in. So I just went on the bike uh, in our house. And if you're on like a stationary bike, you have to train a lot longer to, you know, equal amount, um, the activity level of running. So I was on there for like hours and like the middle of the night, I ended up like falling asleep, like on the, on the bike. <laughs> And, uh, but that kind of got me, helped keep my training up and end up doing the marathon. And that was my fastest marathon to date. So it worked out well. So you focused on one thing and you had your best score ever per se, right? Yep. Is that kind of the way it works? Uh, so how often are you, like, are you working? I think were you were, you working night shift at this time or not? <sighs> Let's see. That was a long time ago. Yeah. I think I was working second shift at that time. Yeah. So when you, how many hours are you training after or before, you know, putting in eight, 12 hour days? Yeah. This is before kids. So still working a lot of hours, but 
I would just do whatever it took to get the training in. So even, you know, get out at midnight, uh, go run around the streets, you know, put in some miles then, or, you know, wake up. Sometimes I'll do two a days, you know, get some more miles in in the morning. So whenever I had free time, I would just put in the training. So you had this plan that you got on the internet, followed it. And at the same time, you had to deviate slightly from that plan, right? Yep. How did that affect your mindset? Did you did you worry about whether you're going to be able to finish it? What was your focus when you came to that like part of your training? Yeah, I was definitely worried. I went. I saw like a podiatrist. I went to like two different doctors. I just wanted to see what was wrong with my foot, if I could still run the marathon because I put all these months of training into it. And I just figured, you know, overuse. My shoes were beat up too, so I'm like. I'm just going to buy a brand new pair of shoes and run in those, you know, maybe like the extra cushion will help me out, but I'm like, I just have to get this done. You know, I worked so hard. I'm not just going to let this slip by. Uh, so I'm just going to go out there and just make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember talking with you back then too. And you were like, I mean, maybe it wasn't on this marathon, but you were fighting some good plantar fasciitis and stuff oh, like that yeah. in your foot. And I was, I would harp at you at, you need to get those insoles out. You need to run barefoot. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, like <laughs> I need to put the miles in. This is the way it's going to work. And I feel now that you're more in tune with your body. You're realizing that that was almost like a crutch. And Absolutely, I'm, you're probably yeah. still feeling to fix your feet from all that like volume of impact on your feet and stuff like that. But it's good to see you switch to that more natural. Like how do you, how does that, change your I know this is kind of slightly off that path but at the same time how does that change your training from running marathons when you're fighting plantar fasciitis tendon you know tendonitis issues or tendon issues you're getting these inserts into your shoes to try to help correct your run you know correct your feet and then months later you're having to get more and more and more how does it feel like versus now running and what are you wearing nowadays that's you know when you're running i'm not saying like are you're training and stuff like that yeah definitely changed i mean especially with the death race i knew like in the past a lot of it was barefoot so that was a big transition because when having plantar fasciitis i could not even walk around my house barefoot i had to wear sandals because i was just in so much pain like it was just excruciating and then it took years to get past that but talking to you and using like the the um, barefoot shoes, the Vibrams that helped out transition, kind of cycle them back and forth. And I just realized that you do really just need to strengthen the body. You know, the cushion did act as a crutch and just, you know, cover up the problem. It didn't fix the problem. So eventually, you know, just learning to be in tune with your body and listen to it and just, you know, strengthen it from, you know, all of the bottom up, everything that made a big difference. Did you have to change your running pattern at all? Like oh, Yeah. I think this is something that most people, when they go and run a marathon, they think they're naturally trained to run. They're naturally like, oh, uh, you know, like we go and take lessons on learning how to squat or deadlift or move weight, but many people don't take the time to actually learn how to run properly. And, you know, obviously, did you change your running pattern? And if so, how much of a part did it play in the outcome of your, your running, whether it's, you know, the difference between nowadays of you running a marathon versus that. Yeah. Well now like I have a zero drop shoe, which means that, you know, the heel and the, your forefoot are both like the same level. So because of that, it makes you run more on your forefoot. So that does change the pattern. Otherwise, you know, it's really common to strike with your heel first and it actually kind of slows you down at extra stress in the body and it can cause more injuries. So that, that made, definitely had changed the way I run as well. You're currently running a marathon a month since you started in January with uh, at least a December, at a minimum December as your accomplishment. Like as you just want to do at least a year, if not, you know, continue Correct. that on. Uh, now that you're running more often barefoot, you're probably running almost as much, if not more than you did just maybe not the in the volume, but at the same time, running a marathon a month is higher than you're normally used to doing. But are you seeing those injuries as much? Are you you know that you change your you change your running gait, right? You kind of change the way that your your shoes are wearing, like when you are the shoes that you pick to go run. How are you dealing with injury wise now? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely over the years, a lot of trial and error, listening to my body. Um, I've just really learned to listen to it. So I'm not running as many miles every single day per week because I need more recovery time just doing a marathon a month. So, you know, after that, I'll definitely give my body a few days off or maybe just take a recovery walk right after just to get the blood flowing. Um, but, you know, I, I just listen to my body and, um, you know, if like my knees are hurting, I know that it could be because, you know, my hip flexors are tight. So I'll do some more squats or lunges just to loosen up the body. So it's, you just really have to just pay attention to everything. Where, what training plan did you get that from? What? Oh, well, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, no training plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so a, like the life, <laughs> you know, right. So I think the more that you train in general, and it doesn't have to be very specific training, but the yeah. more that you train, you start learning things, things like, you now know your recovery is important. And when I think oh, yeah. you first start, you're just like, let me just put the miles in. But you realize that if you take a day off from training and focus on not like a, I'm going to sit on the couch and eat a pizza which is totally acceptable. But at the same time, if you're like, you know what, I'm going to just try and work on like my ankle mobility or stretch yep. a couple things out. How important of a recovery that is that when you go back into that next day, yeah, you might've missed a day of running, but how much better are you feeling on that next day of running versus just beating that body up? Like the iron cowboy, like oh, yeah. if you look at the iron cowboy, he did what? 50 marathon, 50 ultra, no, no, 50 iron man's, 50 iron man's in 50 States in 50 days. You can't get behind on that. Like I remember watching – he's got a Netflix special on it. He like finished his Ironman and a couple hours later like he had to get up and just do it again, just crossing over the state line because he was so far behind to reset him back on time. He had like two hours of rest to go and run another Ironman. But that's for his goal. Like that's for his goal. But I, if you're doing that on a day-to-day -day basis, the amount of – amount of stress you're adding to your central nervous system and just oh, yeah. breaking your body down is just it's just brutal it's it's instead of listening to that piece of paper this is the training and you must do it it's do as much as you can but you also have to respect your body right yeah, like, recovery is huge you know uh i think a lot of people miss that point too but we'll kind of go back on track with that so we did that marathon we knocked out the marathon got that done and then you started rolling into obstacle course races right yep and what was the first one you signed up for? First one I did was the uh, Killington Beast up in Vermont. Which is what for people? Uh, if they don't know, it's I think it was 16 miles that year um, up and down the, the mountains, Killington Mountain in Vermont. Uh, I think there was like, you know, I can't remember how many obstacles there were at that point. But, uh, you know, 30 plus obstacles and, you know, going through cold water and, you know, crawl under barbed wire, a whole bunch of stuff like that. So you went and to tackle that. What training? You're just taking going off your marathon training or what? Yeah, basically, I'm like, I ran a marathon. This thing's only like, you know, advertised 13 to 16 miles long. I'm like, I should be able to knock this out quick. No problem. It's, you know, almost half the distance, maybe a little bit more. But, you know, I felt like on top of the world now that I ran the marathon. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this will be easy. I'll just show up there and just get it done. Were you by yourself? Uh, yeah, I went up by myself. Yep. All right, so you start the Ultra Beast. Uh, beast. Or, sorry, excuse me. You start the Beast. And was it 2013? Yeah, it's 2013, I think. Something like that, yeah. Um, so you do your Ultra Beast. How did that go? Yeah, the Beast uh, started off well and then uh, got bad really fast. I didn't, even though I ran the marathon, I still didn't know that much about hydration, nutrition. So I got behind my hydration. I started getting like really bad cramps. My legs locked up. I was I remember being on the side of the trail, just pounding them, just trying to loosen up my legs. I was just so fatigued. People were just passing me. I had to stop even on like every climb, like I don't know every twenty feet to take a break. I'm like, what is going on here? Like I just totally underestimated that like the main obstacle would be like climbing a mountain, like repeatedly. <laughs> that was like the hardest thing, and it just didn't go well. And um, I remember I got to like a certain point. And I eventually, I quit. <laughs> that was like a big turning point in my life. But did you actually quit at that moment? Well, I kind of, I sat down there at this one area before exiting the course for maybe like 20 minutes. And I was just thinking about all these things in my head, like, well, you know, I, I'm just taking longer than I, you know, I plan. I'm supposed to get back to, um, you know, go watch the kids and I was just started making excuses up in my head of like reasons to quit. 
And, you know, at that at the end of the day, I just let that get the best of me. And so I just walked off the course and. And when you were going home, what was your mindset? Like when you were leaving unfinished on the beast, right? What, yeah. what, what was your mindset getting into that vehicle and driving home? At the first, I was just making excuses, continue saying, ah, it's all right. You know, you, you went like far, you know, I couldn't own up to the fact that I quit right away. Like it, it was just hard for me to accept that. But eventually I accepted it and said, no, at the end of the day, I walked off the course. I didn't finish the race. You can make up all the excuses in the world, but at the end of the day, you know, I quit. And once I realized that, that like, made a big change. How, how did you realize? When, when did you realize that? Like how many days later? Was it weeks? And what was the feeling that you got when you started realizing that this is not me? This is, I'm making excuses. What was the feeling inside you that made you start taking that change of mindset? Well, I was just talking to my friends and then I'm trying to explain to them how I got out of the race and trying to explain it, how I didn't quit, but there's really no way to, to really explain it, you know? And then eventually I'm like, I just need to own up to it, to what I did and just be honest. So, you know, I just had to be honest with myself and say, all right, I quit. And that was like, knowing that literally haunted me. Did you say that to your friends? I didn't say that to my friends. No, that was after like weeks of basically just lying to myself and pretty much making excuses about what happened. So it was, it was embarrassing. And, you know, cause I'm like, I ran a marathon. How could I have failed at this? I just, just totally, you know, underestimated it. But, um, I think it's very interesting because when we talk to ourselves, we lie to ourselves. And for instance, you gave yourself excuses, which is a way for you mm -hmm. to not tell yourself you quit. And when, when you see somebody trying to create a goal and they create that excuse, we all do it. We, everyone has done it yep. and create that excuse. And if you're a friend, it's hard. To, it's, it's, it's like, you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. I totally understand. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, if, for instance, let's, let's just take this whole scenario. You tell your friends, like, listen, I had to get back. It was already late. Um, you know, I, you know, I could have finished it, but all these other kind of things, yep. my body was locking up. We say we could have finished it. We tell our friends that. And I think that's a way for us also asking for acceptance of, hey, is this legit? Like, yeah. did I really quit <laughs> or is this like a good excuse? Yeah, yeah. And your that. friends could be like, yeah, you know, what? I totally understand. And then you can go on and be like, that's the way it was. But I think being a really good friend and somebody is also taking that risk and and if they're a good friend, they're going to be like, listen, actually, those are just big excuses. Yeah. And sometimes it takes us to the fact that we have to tell somebody out loud, like physically hear mm -hmm. our voice say it. So, for instance, if somebody comes in and they're like, listen, I want to, you know, I'm trying to get into this, this outfit for a, a wedding in six months. So I want to lose 15 pounds, 20 pounds or something like that. You know, they can, they can kind of like say that. And all right, there's my goal. But if I'm a person and I say it back to them, so what you're trying to do is lose 20 pounds before this wedding. And when you hear it back from somebody else saying it, it has a different like resonance into you. Hmm. So when somebody else goes to you and says, well, Dan, you quit. Like imagine if your friends were like, Dan, yeah. you quit. Like you'd probably take that initial like, no, no, no. Like I didn't really quit. I just had these things until it set in. I feel like there's two ways that we can take that situation. One, our friends be the ones to be like, listen, like congratulations on how well you did, but at the same time, get you actually quit. Think about it. Oh yeah. Or we dig inside of ourselves and we have that weird feeling that doesn't feel right. That I can live my life with this, but I also feel like maybe I should try again and just prove to myself that I can do it. Yeah. Right. So what happened with you? Yeah, that was exactly it. It haunted me. I'm like, I'm not a quitter. I've never quit anything in my life. Like I have to redeem myself. So I knew I wanted to go back to the exact same race, same location and finish it. So I know I had a year to train. So that's what I did. You know, I trained all year. Um, now I altered my training now that I kind of had an idea of what to do. So I, you know, learned more about hydration more about nutrition, uh, you know, electrolytes, uh, 
I did a lot more, you know, climbing. So instead of just running on the road, you know, into trails. You're up um, in the White Mountains. I always see you posting. Yep. You like drive up there, all the way up there. Oh yeah. Run for seven to nine hours, and you drive home. Because <laughs> I don't even want to. Yeah. I don't want to drive up and back. Never mind. <laughs> drive yeah. up and run seven to nine hours. That's awesome. So you ended up doing all this training. You came back. You killed the beast this time. Yep. And then you uh, you decided that you're going to take a next step, which was what through the Ultra Beast. Which- yeah, when I was doing the beast the first time, when I failed or quit, I should say. I saw these people and they're doing two laps of it. I'm like, this is insane. Like I can't even do one and they're doing two. I'm like, you know what? Like a high level of like fitness. So now that I did it the first time, I'm like, all right, I want to do, I want to do the ultra beast. So I'm like, I need to up my cardio to even higher level now to accomplish that. When I did my beast, I would watch these like ultra beast running and I, that's exactly what I would think. I was like, I don't know how these people are doing it because I'm still, when I started doing, doing these things, I have all my training from like almost five deployments of being in Afghanistan and Iraq where we do, you know, rocks that we're starting at 5,000. We go up to 8,000 down to 5,000, you know, with 80 pounds on our back. We're training that full year, just running five miles every Monday, doing CrossFit, we're doing ex- like extensive amount of training. Then we do our tactical training. So we're going down to South Carolina. We're doing stress tests. So we're like bear crawling with all of our kit on. We're having to like, you know, shoot our targets hitting within a certain area. Otherwise we're doing it again. I had shells because some reason my gloves had holes in them. Surprise, surprise. But I had like nine millimeter shells dug into my palms and I'm bleeding. <laughs> like, I mean, because my hand, I'm bear crawling with all this stuff. Like shooting just – we are put so much training in. So when we go out there and we're hiking around these mountains at 7,000 feet, we're not dead. So to me, that's the toughest training I've been in. So you tell me to go and do a beast or you tell me to do oh, yeah. a marathon. I'm like, oh, God, please. Like, yeah, yeah, not a big issue. But it's very interesting because when I did that beast, there was no question in my mind that I could make it. I'm not going to be the fastest. I think I actually came in dead last in my age group. But I didn't care. Yeah. For me, it was more of I just want to get it done. Yeah. But I'm seeing these ultra beast people, and I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm never going to be there. Like I'm I'm not going to be there, which I think is like exactly what you said. Like I'm never going to be there. Like that's yeah. another level. But then all of a sudden, you've got that idea in your head, and you're like, let's rock and roll. Absolutely. Let's go and do this. So now you start training, and then did you do your ultra beast before your big rate, your your marathon, or what? I did a, a fifty miler next. I knew that. Um. You knew how to kick up the endurance. I knew how to kick up the endurance. Yeah. So I'm like, I need to get, you know, you know, the marathon, you know, worked out about time wise to, um, or, you know, half of what it was to do the beast. So I'm like, do a 50 miler and, you know, that way I just need to get used to more being on the trails, you know, the wear and tear on the body. So, um, you know, I set that as my next goal. So you did the 50 miler and, I always like hearing the ending of <laughs> what happened at the 50 miler. So let's discuss that. Well, the 50 miler was going really well. Um, I was taking a little bit longer than I thought, but I was getting it done. And then I just started getting behind. It was in November uh, in Massachusetts. And I just started getting behind on my hydration again. And then once I started doing that, I started getting nauseous. I'm like, okay. And the next thing you know, I threw up. I'm like, oh, this is not good. I started feeling a little better, but then because being dehydrated, my stomach turned and I had like a lot of uh, GI issues. So for like the next like nine miles, or I threw up like nine times throughout the end of the race. Jeez. Yeah, just constantly throwing up. And of course with that, you can't, I was even just trying to get a sip of water in, you know, just get like a little crumb of food at that point. My body couldn't hold anything down. I am, you know, completely gassed out. And now it's getting cold because I'm slowing down because I can't keep up the same pace. You know, I didn't have to change the clothes because I'm out in the woods or back at, you know, my bag and it's nighttime and, you know, I bend over and now I can't even stand up because my body is just like, like locked up. So I used to stick to prop myself up and it was pretty much just like walking and running, just trying to do like both just to get to the finish line. So I get to the finish line 
and I tried to get my car to warm up for like 45 minutes, the heat blast, and I could not warm up. And so I'm like, I just need to go get some food and water. So I go to the guest, uh, to the, this grocery store in the area, and I try to ask him where food is, and I realize that I can't even talk. Like I lost like the ability to speak. Like I was like so hypothermic. And I just couldn't even function properly. It was like the weirdest thing. Um, so luckily there's a hotel across like the room across from the grocery store. So I go there and I was just like such like a, I should have been in the hospital. <laughs> 100% should have been in the hospital looking back. But I basically, I'm trying to communicate with this guy now and I can't, can barely even speak using hand signs. And the guy must have thought I was, I don't know, crazy. So I go in there, I just turn the, the shower on hot all the way, get in the shower. I'm just eating like this hot dog bun that's all saggy, all soggy, you know, underneath the water, just trying to warm up and get some type of food in me. That's as <laughs> you get the finish line of a 50 mile yeah. uh, wet, wet hot dog buns in a, a lonely hotel room with yeah. hot water. Oh, it's brutal. Why are you putting yourself through all this suffering? Well, it was the weirdest thing. Like... I just knew the feeling of quitting and the feeling of failure. And even though I was suffering, I was throwing up. I was hypothermic. I was shivering. My teeth were chattering. I'm like, I'm not going to quit again. I'm like, that is, that is just not going to happen. You know, I just want to set a good example for, you know, other people to follow and, you know, being a quitter is not that example. So I'm just basically in the mindset, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to get there. And then it paid off that definitely it was like a big moment too. changed my perspective. And, um, man, it like the, the runner's high I got like days later it was the weirdest thing. I felt like I was like floating, like it was like, the crazy endorphins and it was just out of control. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's a lot of misconception for people who've never put themselves in that place. When I see, athletes or people do these amazing feats. I always see the question of why would they do that? Why are they putting themselves through that torture through this event? Why are they doing this, you know, extensive training? And if you've never brought yourself to a point of suffering to the level that the only thing that matters is that next step in front of you, or that next meal or that next shelter, you can't really say like, oh, this is a dumb idea, you, you know, because when you're in combat in general, there's never an idea of like, yes, you will have the question like, am I going to die? Like, especially like the first time you get shot at the first time you get blown up or something like that. So you have that mindset of, oh my God, I'm now not invincible. War becomes real at that point. But as I said, you get used to you get used to being mortared and rocketed and yeah. shot at and all that stuff. Once you get used to that, it's more of you get and, and fuel it as okay, this is happening. What is the only thing that I have to do at this point? So my point, you know, was when I was a team leader and I'm standing on top of an improvised explosive device. I start getting shot at my first reaction is I need cover. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So I know my team members, you know, are firing back, allowing me to move to take cover. That's the only thing that matters at that point. I'm not worried about if I'm going to die. I'm not worried about the pain that's in my body. I'm not worried about how I like dehydrate or anything like that. The only thing that I'm worrying about is creating that safety. And I feel like when you come back from war and a lot of, of us deal with this is that we don't ever get to experience the feeling of adrenaline of war or the adrenaline of putting yourself in a place that you're stripped down to basic survival needs. But when you are stripped of those basic survival needs, that's it. There's nothing else that's important in your life. It's there's nothing, no bills, no yep. whatever it is. And I find that you can take that whether you're, and we're going to dive into this with your death race um, right after this, is that whether that's a 50 miler that you can't stand up, you're not focused on, oh my gosh, I might die because my core temperature is too low or this, yeah. right? That, all that's gone. Yeah. All that's gone. So someone, an outsider looking in at you is going to be like, 
this person's dumb. They're pushing their body too far. They, they could die from this, right? But when you're going through that, are you thinking about death at all? Are you thinking about like, oh my gosh, my kidneys are shutting down. And, you know, like what are you thinking about when you're using a stick to prop your body up to go those last nine miles, 10 miles, 15 miles? Yeah, basically one foot in front of the other. That's it. That's as basic as it is. You know, I'm just thinking, all right, I just have to take one more step. Okay, that's good. I got that done. Now let me take another step. All right, how am I feeling now? You know, it's that's all you're thinking about. It's just how to get to the next to to the end goal. But just even just the smallest increments. You know, can I give myself even you know a sip of water now? Can my body handle it? You know, you try it, you throw up. Okay, I guess not. You know, you're just taking nothing else is even relevant at that point. Just survival, basically. I feel like it's a very good time to learn about your body too. When you strip it away from everything that it needs. You entirely exhaust it. There's only a couple factors at that point where you're going to make it better. Whether that's going to be rest, food, water, fire as heat, like shelter as comfort and get you out of the bad weather, right? That's the only thing that you're worried about, right? That's, I feel like a good time in your life where you can truly experiment. Well, what's going to make me better? And I think at that time, you're learning the most valuable points of living. And at the same time, if your body couldn't handle it, you would have ended up like you were back at the beast, right? Your body, you quit, you quit, right? But you were able to find an excuse. I think the body is able to, when it gets into the, oh, this is death, the body will create an excuse to allow us not to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's my theory. And unless it's true survival, true survival, whether it's, you know, you're living in the woods and you got lost or in war, true survival is probably the only time that you can push your body to the point that it will die. But I, you know, and I, this is all my own opinion. This is not, you know, anyone else's, but I think at the same time, you could have always stopped whenever you wanted to oh, that yeah. 50 mile. You could have had medical there and all that other stuff, but you were still, mentally tuned in. And even after all the training that you've done, your mindset is realistically what kept you going, not your body. Oh, hundred percent. And now looking back at your beast that you failed, do you think that you could have actually finished that if you had that mindset? Oh yeah. If you've been through that suffering before, you think you could oh, finish yeah. it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's like, I don't know. I always find that fascinating. Yeah. It changes but, your perspective for sure. Well, we'll kind of continue on and get into the meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about here, even though it's been a pretty long while to get into it, but a lot of good points that you're bringing up and kind of just realizing that you didn't wake up and say, I want to tackle this death race. And, you know, for a summary of what this death race is, is Dan spent a little over 68 hours, pretty much nonstop awake, providing all his food, shelter, hauling a rucksack filled with random items that they didn't really tell you what they are, you know, hiking up and down, you know, this mountain carrying heavy, weird objects, uh, you know, moving stones around, jumping into the cold river, you know, into ponds, getting out, doing group physical fitness, sensory tests to involve, you know, plugging his ears and eyes and having to stand and count for an hour you know, trying to figure out when an hour is of time. There's so many challenges that you had to overcome without a single training plan, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the death race, they don't tell you when it starts, right? They don't tell right. you when yep. it finishes. Yep. They don't tell you what's going to be involved. And even when you talk to people who did it the year before and the year before, it's always evolving. It's always it's changing. Always different. Right? You know? So they had you, you know, go online. You had to create a video that you had to put on social media. Mm-hmm. So it helps keep you what, accountable, helps promote Absolutely. their death race. Then in this year, they had you have to find a partner for this event. And after you find a partner, you then still have to bring all these supplies and then show up. So talk to us. How did you find your partner of anything to, to, to experience something like this? How did you find your partner? And talk about the events leading up to you driving up there the last couple of weeks. 
All right. Well, my partner, um, you know, this year they made that they had to have a two-man team or two-person team. So I knew immediately that the one guy I need was going to be my friend Matt Fryman, who has the same mindset. Uh, he's you know done 200-mile uh, ultra marathons, the Tahoe 200, uh, a lot of Ironmans and anvils, and a lot of other crazy endurance events. So I knew he gets it. I asked him, he said he was in, so we're excited and, um, you know, follow the registration steps, all the process, you know, I've been wanting to do this for 12 years now. So I was hundred percent committed, you know, and all the training leading up to it went really well. And then about a week and a half before the race, um, he said he wasn't going to be able to do it because <laughs> he was injured. Right. So that's got to, you know, and then this podcast is a lot about that mindset and setbacks and struggles and just hearing from somebody else who did do that. I feel like that would be like a shot in my heart. Like, holy heck, what am I going to do now? So what'd you do? Yeah, that was kind of a big blow. Uh, I know it's not his fault. He was legitimately injured, but like when you're trained for this race, there's so much unknown. So every little variable that you could train for and try to, you know, take care of ahead of time is going to help you out. So now there's a whole new variable added in that I don't have a partner. So I emailed the race director saying that, you know, is there going to be someone available for me to team up with because, or can I even do the race? Um, Cause I still want to do it. Even if I was going to have to do it solo and do twice the amount of work, I was okay with that. I just still want to go out there, but he said, you know, we'll find you a partner. So just show up. So, well, you know, I followed your training. You're doing, just like touch base on a couple things you did 600 burpees. I think before you went to work, yep. you know, just nonstop straight through. And then you did, you lunged a mile. How many steps was that? 1,650 consecutive steps. That must've been fun counting to that. <laughs> Lunges. Yeah. You know, just a lot of different training. I saw you, you know, crawling, dragging sandbags up hills, tons and tons of burpees. Obviously that's really important. Just, random stuff to just yeah. put your, your your suffering through right like random stuff oh, yeah. right barefoot training uh taking cold showers every day uh underwater breath holds a lot of stuff just to really test my mind and you know pain tolerance and just to strengthen every part of my body so i think it's cool that you're you're pushing yourself not only on that limit of physical fitness, but experiencing with temperature difference. And a lot of people don't think about that. Getting your body used to like really cold water or really warm water or going in and out of that is all stuff that doesn't seem important, but plays a huge part when you're going through the suffering. <laughs> we'll call it the suffering. Oh, yeah. When you're going through the suffering and you're already miserable and then you're experiencing something new for the first time. So if you never trained in cold water or had like the experience of being showered with a you know, fire hose or jumping in a freezing cold pond with all your gear on or ran with all your kit soaking wet filled with water, if you're already miserable and you experience that for the first time, it's, it's, it's brutal. The first tough water I ever did, the first hole, the first like event was bear crawl through a swamp. And I'm here thinking I'm going to run 12 miles with my dry shoes. And that first mile I hit yeah. that, I was miserable. I was absolutely <laughs> miserable yeah. for, for the other 12 miles left of that. So experiencing that type of stuff is really awesome. But I, I think more people should do that. But anyway, that's kind of a tangent. So you, you do all the stuff. You have a partner that you've never met that's going to be up there. And you show up now. What happens? So I show up and as soon as I pull in the parking lot, immediately the race has already started. There's the people that were there before me, they're doing PT, they're trying to have us organize our cars, how we park them according to reverse alphabetical order, according to the latitude from which we live in, which is like impossible basically, but cause, you know, we have people from all over the world, we don't know each other, you know, <laughs> so it gives us like an impossible task and I was do a bunch of PT, then, you know, we go over to registration where I meet my partner. So you meet your partner, and who's your partner? Uh, his name is Zach, really cool dude, um, works in Muscle and Fitness. and um, he Muscle did, Fitness Magazine? Muscle Fitness Magazine, yep. He did the year before, which is good. So, um, you know, he was made it, you know, he didn't finish it, but he was there, at least knew, 
you know, some of the stuff that was going to go on, kind of like the, the way to play the game kind of initially gave me some good tips. So I met up with him and, uh, you know, just started going through the, through the event. So one of these things that like, so talk, talk us through like that first day, first evening, kind of tell us the idea what happened, what you kind of were doing and then, you know, some more, yeah. uh, some more wrenches in the system. Sure. So the first day basically we get there, you know, we, like we said, we have our rucks that we're carrying on our backs, has all our food and water to last us the duration of event, but we don't know what's going to end. So I pretty much guessed on how many calories to take. And we're having us drag these things around, plus our other gear. Mine weighs about 50 pounds and just going across like, this huge farm field, you know, doing bear crawls, all these exercises. Then they have us, um, you know, do a, a bunch of stuff blindfold, try to get stuff out of our packs. We had to sew, um, you know, a number on our bib. They had us crawl through a beaver pond, submerge our packs, which, you know, once they retained water, they got even heavier, um, you know, chop a bunch of wood. They split us up into groups, had us go up the mountain to, you know, readjust the staircase that previous death racers, you know, built going up to the top of Joe's mountain, which is cool. And then they had us, uh, you know, they, they would constantly mess with us, you know, just try to get us to break mentally by telling us we're going to do other things, just try to, you know, lure us to quit by saying all right well we're gonna make you do 3,000 burpees well unless one person gives us their bib and quits so stuff like that just to mess with us so then you know came nighttime they're like all right you know if you're gonna finish this race you have to finish with your original partner but now we're gonna team up with a new partner someone else you don't know so they kind of always doing stuff just to keep you uncomfortable to to mess with your mind so now we're uh you know zip tied to uh, a new partner teamed up with this lady, uh, Don, who was really cool. And they gave us a raw egg and they said, if the egg breaks then we're out of the race. So now they gave you each an egg, right? They gave us each an egg. Yeah. So we each have one hand holding the egg. Then, you know, our, our hands in the middle are, you know, zip tied together. So for estimated, how many hours are you guys zip tied together? We didn't know how long it was going to be, but ended up being probably like 12 hours. So you're zip tied to somebody you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to go to the bathroom at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that made it a challenge, at least eating and drinking, trying to get like our Nalgene bottles off of our rocks or getting food out. So if I wanted something, I'd have to hold her egg. She'd have to get it out and then I have to give her the eggs back. She'd give me the food or water, you know, I'd consume it and give it back to hold the eggs because we couldn't put the eggs inside our rocks or anything. So, you know, you're really working as a team now with someone you don't know, just through good communication and um, just just getting out there, just trying to figure out whatever it takes to get it done. You know, they had us bear crawling up and down the mountain all night, answering these riddles. And if we failed, you know, had to do burpees as a team. And then we're going through, the, the trail was lined with nettles and it's straight up this mountain, so steep to, to start with, then lined with nettles. So now your skin, every time it touches them, it's like this burning sensation. So you're in like a lot of extra pain, just from these <laughs> stupid plants, <laughs> you know? So yeah, you're just doing that all night. You know, you don't know when it's going to stop, but, you know, you see people complaining, you know, whining, and that's when you know that they're starting to break. But, you know, we kept on going until uh, morning time, and, and we were able to cut the, the zip ties off and go on to, like, the next uh, next events. I always remember when I was going through boot camp, one thing that I always kept in my mind was never be the first one to break. <laughs> never be the first one to quit. I don't care how bad those push-ups are or those planks, whatever position they're putting you in, just be stronger than one person. Yeah, <laughs> like like yeah. keeping that mindset and you would always stay kind of out of trouble. So you're zip tied with, with Dawn for like 12 hours. You guys are helping each other out with these eggs, um, you know, just to, to do whatever you need to get, you need to get done. Then you finally go back to your partner and what happens? Well, this is now daybreak. This is the, morning two basically and now you know they take cut the zip ties off or lined up inside like this barn and now they make like uh six different teams and like all right now this is land navigation so i was hoping at this point i was going to take my ruck off because my back was killing me my shoulders were carrying this thing all night you know but nope we're going to carry that and we got to navigate to this point i don't know eight plus miles out on the top of this mountain and on top of that they gave us now um, a rock to carry. So I don't know, it was probably like 20 pounds, something like that. So now I got to carry this rock in addition to it. <laughs> you're tired 
and you're with a different group of people. So actually my original partner, Zach, wasn't even in this group. And now you're trying to work again with these new group of people trying to figure out what to do. What's like the best points to hit, you know, to get um, our goals. So we figured it out. We'll go all the way back out there, you know, get this poem. We come back down, you know, we have to do 500 burpees as a team, you know, answer some uh, questions about the band journey because that was uh, the theme every year. Death race is a theme. This was the journey. And, you know, they put us in like this stream, the water's running on us. And I'm like, all right, I, I don't know what's next. I just hope I don't have to go back up the mountain, up this mountain called Bloodroot. Well, we had to go back up that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course, during this day too, there was different time hacks. So there's like three evolutions and each evolution, if you're not in the top 50%, you're getting cut. So you got to move too. You got to be quick. You got to work together and you got to be fast. So you're going through these groups. You're now you're running up and down a blood route with your, you know, your new partner that you just met a couple days ago. When then what happens? Uh, we made like the first evolution, the second evolution, and now end up meeting up with Zach, and we're supposed to go forage for mushrooms. And well, leading up to that, now it's like the second climb. Been awake for well, I'm over 24 hours into the race, but been awake longer than that. And I kind of go into like this altered reality where I'm looking at my feet and I can't tell if I'm on that mountain at that current time or if I'm at home dreaming of being in that moment. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing ever. And I start um, hallucinating, seeing a car in the woods that wasn't there. So we're slowing down at this point. We're just trying to keep up. It's hot out too. We're trying to keep up with our hydration. Uh, we try to forge for these mushrooms, but some people are able to find them quick in the woods. But it took us, I don't know, we couldn't have a watch either, maybe roughly an hour. And, you know, we're going back. We're still slow moving at this point. You know, the blisters are popping up. Uh, you know, the chafing is getting more intense. But, you know, we get to the checkpoint and they say, you know, give us your bibs. You guys didn't make the time hack. That's got to be demoralizing. So what do you have to do? Is the well, race over? <laughs> That was a point too, because now like they're like, all right, the race is over. So I'm like, man, I just trained like 12 years for this. This has been like a gold mine forever. And now like it's over. But at that point you just accept it. Like what else can I do? You know, that there's rules here, but then they say, well, you may be in luck because the uh, owner Joe DeSena has a way of letting people earn their way back in. So now talking to Zach, we were tired. We were already burned out and we almost for a second fell into the trap of saying, you know, are we going to go on or not? Because you, this is that point kind of like in the beast where it could be an excuse saying, well, I didn't make the time hack. So, yeah. you know, I didn't quit, but I didn't make the time hack, but I knew I wasn't going to fall down. You know, go down yeah, that yeah, road again. Right? So I knew that if I was given the opportunity, I was going to do whatever it took to get back in. So Joe comes over, he's like, all right, you guys want in? I'm like, absolutely. So I'm like, I, I want to go on my terms. You know, if I'm given an opportunity, I'm going to go as far as I can. So he's like, all right. So he's like, all right, you guys, uh, different people had to do, do different things to get back in the race for Zach and I. He's like, all right, you have to carry this log up. Um, it was super heavy. It's huge log for both of us, two, per, two people up the mountain and then back down. And then we may not even get our bibs back. We may not, not even be in the race. That's just something he said. If we wanted a chance at it, that's what we'd have to do. So we started moving up. You know, he's hallucinating, his dehydration is getting worse. You know, he's moving a lot slower. So I'm trying to move the log more by myself, even just drag it, pick it up. And, um, you know, I even have him move up, but eventually he's just sitting down and not moving. So another death racer comes down. I ask her to, uh, you know, escort him to the medics just to get him checked out. But at that point, like I, I knew his race was over. That's got to be tough. So you lost, you know, one a couple of weeks before the race. Oh, yeah. Lost one during the race. Now you got to think about, you know, what do you do? You know, so what do you do? You're by yourself oh, now. No. You're with this huge, heavy log thing that you're trying to carry up and down this mountain. Yeah, it's uh, now it's about 30 hours into the race. It's nightfall. Other people are on their own journeys during the race. So I'm like all alone in the woods climbing up this mountain at night. I had my 50 pound ruck on my back. I got this log. It's probably like 130 pounds. So it's supposed to be a two man job. Now it's just my job. And I'm like, this is like the time. This is like make it or break. This is what it's all about at this moment in time, you know? And I thought I'm just going to do whatever it takes to get this up there. So I carried it. I dragged it. Um, 
and I, I got it done, you know, and on the way back down, I stopped for a second to take a break and I just look around, you know, and see the stars in the sky and I just like really just appreciate life. You know, I was just blessed to have the opportunity to even just be able to move. You know, some people don't have that ability, you know, and I was just very grateful just to, just to be alive and just to be able to push myself to the max. So it's funny you bring that up because I feel like that's the, that's the point that you realize that without a doubt you're finishing this. Uh, and, and, and before you told yourself, yes, I'm finishing it, I'm going to do whatever I can. But I think like when you get that moment, because I've had that in Afghanistan too, and no matter how miserable you're going through, the second that you can find some positivity in that suffering, you now have become invincible. Absolutely. There's nothing that will stop you. And that's what that journey is about, is creating, pushing you to the limit that you become unstoppable because you realize that it's not about the how much effort you put in. It's not how many times you climb that mountain. It's about finding deep inside you that you realize that all this time that it's worth, you thought about how much suffering pain it's going to be. It really has nothing to do with that, but hmm. it has everything to do with you as a human being and oh, how yeah. strong your brain is. Oh yeah. You I know? knew at that point that, they could have went on for days that I was not going to stop. There was nothing going to stop me. I knew at that point. So after you accept the fact that there's nothing going to stop you, you continue on through that suffering up and down, getting sprayed by a hose, you know, then you start realizing that it's coming to an end, right? Yeah. We basically, a whole bunch of other crazy things happened. We had to plant seeds. Um, we had to go up and down the mountain. They had to try to memorize like, set up for Legos, hike another few miles throughout the woods, try to recreate it. They had us do, um, you know, all night and, you know, more burpees, spraying us with the hose, crawling through mud, basically just to sum up a lot of the craziness, sensory deprivation where we were blindfolded, our ears were covered. We had to figure out, you know, when the hour passed, we um, had to take a written test. Uh, they stole our shoes. So I had to make shoelaces out of some uh, paracord some 550 cord and some uh, zip ties just uh, <laughs> just so I can keep my shoes on my feet. Jeez. You know, the, the blisters were absolutely out of control, like an inch in diameter. Um, you know, the skies opened up. It was torrential downpouring, like the heaviest rains I've ever seen. And now you're getting cold. People are dropping because of that because I can't deal with the cold. And now, you, you know, you're – over 48 hours in, you know, and now they tell us um, we have to go climb like the mountain, you know, the Nolly Challenge, like all night, basically. So now I team us up with two more people and we have to carry like this huge pipe that's like probably 200 pounds. Plus we got a rucks on our back, you know, up this mountain that's, you know, not all wet. So now the even traction's even harder. The blisters are and the chafing is on another level. Like I've never experienced like <laughs> that pain itself. Just from that was absolutely out of control. But um, yeah, it's just nothing was going to stop us. So all night, you know, up and down that mountain, eventually it was split off, you know, and just kind of go on our own up and down the mountain. And then, you know, it led into like the final morning. So there you go. In the final morning, you already know you're going to, you're going to make this, you're going to see it out to the end. And or they all group you together, kind of. They're still pushing you all the way, you know, phys, you know, some yeah. sort of PT all the way to the end. But you're finally kind of seeing that the end of the light. What happens? Yeah, now it's like um, our like 60, 68, and they have us do a bunch of PT. None of us had our bibs, and we had to like recite these poems together and do a bunch more burpees while getting sprayed in the face of the hose. And I'm like, wow, this is it. You know, we're, we're getting right down here to the end. So we're all lined up and they're like, all right, if you have a, your original partner still remaining, step forward. So the majority of the people, the death racers step forward. And it was myself and a handful of others that were in the back. And they're like, all right, if you're not in the front, then, you know, your journey's over. And at first I thought it was almost like a, like another one of their tricks. And I'm like, you know what, I, what's going on here? But they're like, no, that's it. You know, it's a team event and we're only giving out, you know, finisher skulls to uh, their main team. So they went on for, you know, I don't know, a short time longer, just did a couple quick tasks and they got their skulls and 
And that was it. So that's got to be pretty tough to go 68 hours. And I remember you saying right from the get-go too, you're like, there's nothing that's going to stop me from getting my skull. But I always like to ask the question at the end of the significance of the skull before you did the death race to the significance of the skull after the death race. And what was the actual purpose of that death race? Yeah, the the skull like meant so much beforehand, you know, just like something like tangible that you could hold just to show like you've been there. But like what I have inside of me, what I know I was out there and I accomplished, like you cannot buy that. That has to be like earned through like blood, sweat and plenty of tears at the end. You know, it was very, you know, overwhelming emotionally. I was like crying like crazy. It was like that was like the experience I always imagined and I was like chasing for years, you know. And just experiencing that, that like just changed my perspective just on life in general. And it was literally like a life-changing journey, which I knew that was going to be. And when I told people about it, like they kind of laughed. I'm like, oh, it's just a race. Well, it's more than just a race. It's really just like a test of like the human will and the ability to push through physical pain just because you are mentally strong enough. Yeah, like it's, it's so cool when you get into that, whether you choose to go into that point in life or whether you're forced into it, there's definitely some learning that happens that you are going to go out. You're going to have that Spartan death race with those finishers and no one else is ever going to be able to understand that. Yeah. But what I also think it does is now you could look at other things and be like, you know what? I don't have a clue of what they experience, but I can respect the hard work that someone puts in oh, or, absolutely, yeah. or looking at the way of like life and putting yourself through challenges on a daily, like day-to-day basis. You know, how, how has the, your mindset from years ago, not even prior to death race, but years ago changed from where it is now? And what is the day-to-day differences that you see that you do? Yeah, before I would probably just like try to seek out comfort more. It's very easy just to do that. You know, everyone just wants to be comfortable. But now I try to make myself uncomfortable every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which most people really just don't get. They don't understand it. And I can understand why they don't understand it, you know, because I was there once too. But I just try to add challenges to my life every day just to basically make it harder. So when something big does happen, it's like, okay, well, it's really not that bad. Yeah, that that daily struggle to find uncomfortness is definitely important. I think whether you're putting that in physical fitness or wearing extra clothes on a hot day mm-hmm. or taking the dogs out in the wintertime with shorts on, oh, yeah. I think there's always something that you can do to help kind of stress that body. And, you know, for all the challenges that you've gone through, people don't realize that this has been like over 10 years of a journey that you didn't start off at powerlifting and be like, I'm going to do a death race, but your plan has always changed. Whether you had had this plan to be a powerlifter and also a plan to be a marathon and then a plan like this, all these plans didn't really mean anything. They were just little steps in your journey to understand a little bit more about you. And that journey constantly changed, right? Oh yeah. You know, so I want you to give our listeners something that, you know, what is one really good piece of advice that you can provide for them for someone who's never taken that first step down a journey or for the everyday per- person that they can do today. So you give yourself a challenge every day to take, you know, to accomplish, you know, there's tons of decisions every day in life where you could take the easy way or the hard way. And I always choose the hard road. So a classic example is, you know, stairs or elevator, always take the stairs. You know, if I go for a run, and, you know, the trail to the left is straight and the trail to the right goes up a mountain. Well, I'm going to take the hard road. I'm going to go up that mountain. You know, it's just going to feel better at the end, you know, bigger sense of accomplishment, better adaptation for your body. So just little things, you know, cold showers or anything, any any of life's challenges, you know, parking further away at the grocery store so you can get a little extra walking in, you know, walking that carriage back up instead of leaving it on the side. There's just like a million things every day you could do in your life just to add in like a little more physical fitness or just to just be a better person. 
And all those things add up to just a little bit more movement, right? A little exactly. bit more movement every day. Like you can help your brain out by moving more and you can help your movement out by thinking deeper into the movements that you're doing or what you're doing and just building that connection deeper with you. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think the hard road, I think it's a really, really good lesson. It's a lesson that it's, e- you know, it's, oh, it's easy, obviously, to take the easy road. It's easy to find excuses. It's easy to do that. But when you get to a point or you're able to find that level that you can look inside yourself and be like, this is who I am and be comfortable with that releases a lot of the make-believe stress that we have in life of bills. Like, and I, you know, like the whole Wim Hof breathing, I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of like him and like yeah. the, obviously the cold weather and all that stuff. But he always talks about how it, how putting your body through real stress in life of temperature of exhaustion of, you know, stress and that physical aspect, how that, you know, takes a look at the aspects of stress that we think about that are real, such as, you know, you're paying your bills or, you know, late payment or something like that. And it reduces that stress level. And I cannot agree with that more. I created CrossFit Harder to deal with, all my, you know, issues of war and all my memories and my victim's guilt and all that stuff of war. I, I opened up Cross Iron because it was my therapy. And that's kind of what I'm trying to promote too with this podcast that you could create therapy by moving more or just thinking more about yourself. Mm. And you definitely are a person that has taken that step who was an everyday person that didn't not didn't didn't realize that you had this oh, yeah. capability in life. You didn't realize from that day one that that the day that you started powerlifting that would lead you down here, but it has, and that journey has just been something that I think we all look back on and are so appreciative. And seeing all the little steps, it was never. When you look back at your training, are you like looking at? your medals are you looking like oh oh look <laughs> look at this i got a uh, first place is powerlifting one and look at my uh spartan race medals do you ever look at those no they're actually in a room i never even go in <laughs> yeah it's like it's the same thing that like all my military awards are yeah. shoved in a box because it's not about that a piece of metal or that award or that no. trophy it's about that entire journey and the hard road to get absolutely there. You know, uh, what, is there anything else that you want to say to all of our listeners today? No, just go out there and just live your best life. You know, I really just hope everyone can find their own personal death race. You know, they don't have to do the death race, but find something that is way out of their comfort zone. That seems like a dream or something that they don't even know if they could do, but to just go after it because, you know, the journey and, you know, the self-exploration and what you're going to get out of it would be priceless. So that's awesome. Yeah, I think that is that is the best advice. You don't need a plan. It's like if you listen to his entire story, go back, listen to it again. He didn't have a plan. He had a plan to run a marathon one time and it led him down this entire road to learn this huge connection with his body. You know, I think that's great advice. Like, honestly, like, thank you so much, Dan, for coming out today. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, appreciate it. And for all of our listeners, we'll be back next week with more information on mindset, movement, fitness, and nutrition. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Andrew Petroulis.